Welcome to Equosity, our podcast about all things equine, with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of Clicker Training for Your Horse and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. Last week, we began a conversation with Anne Eady. Anne is blind, and instead of a dog, she uses a miniature horse named Panda. I know many of you are already familiar with Panda because I talk about her a lot. Panda is an extraordinary horse. I can say that because I trained her to be a guide, and I know what a quick study she was. We've been talking a lot about cues in the recent podcasts, and I can think of no better way to illustrate the concepts we've been exploring than to talk about Panda's training and the job she does for Anne. So I invited Anne to join us. As we normally do, we've divided our conversation up into smaller segments. This is part two of that larger conversation. We began last week with the contrast between command and cue-based training. And we'll pick up here with a question Dominique asked Anne about why she chose Panda to be her guide. So why a horse? How did that happen? Who decided that she was going to be a project for a guide horse? How did that happen? Who decided, I'm not getting another dog, I'm getting a horse instead? You actually got both. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. How did that happen? I had started hearing about guide horses in 2000. Yeah, in 2000, um, because some people down in North Carolina had trained or were training a miniature horse to be a, not to be a guide for a particular person, but just as a demonstration that miniature horses could do the job. So I had started hearing about it. At the same time, my uh, first guide dog, Bailey, was getting to be uh, ready for retirement. He was 11 years, going on 11 years old. So I was thinking about the whole process of getting an, you know, getting another guide dog and feeling the the stress of that. He was a very good guide dog. We had worked together for almost nine years. So I was thinking that uh, about the next steps in, in my process. And I had always wanted a, a German Shepherd as a guide because I like the breed and I like the way they work and they don't look as what, downtrodden, as uh, submissive as Labradors do. Um, and all the Labrador people are going to be going, what? what? They, they what? don't have that hangdog look that Labradors. You mean they, they, they don't the look sad at you. Eyes. With, right, right. So it's, it's not so much that they're downtrodden, but they definitely do the sad eye. I'm starving, and you've got something on your plate, and I'm sure if I stare at you long enough, you'll drop some of it on the floor for me because... Oh, I have these wonderful liquid eyes that are just staring, staring, staring. Yes, that look. So 
German shepherds, of course, have a very different uh, reputation. And well, I've certainly look, known a lot of very resilient German shepherds. Yes, and and they they get a lot more uh, respect from the general public rather than uh, cooing and. Well, everyone uh, wants to pet a lab. Yes. But the German Shepherd, people will kind of, oops, maybe I'll stay away. <laughs> They'll at least ask first yeah, before they... <laughs> yeah, for their own safety. <laughs> That's right. And the, then the Shepherds are generally, uh, although I, I've known some that are, uh, you know, will climb into anybody's lap, but uh, generally they are more of a one-person dog mm-hmm. or a family dog. They don't care as much about attention from other people. Yeah, they're usually not the PR agent that a lab can be. At any rate, I had always wanted a a German Shepherd, so I was thinking I really wanted to to get one for my next guide dog. But I was intrigued by this idea of a miniature horse because the uh, there is a really big transition between one guide dog and another there's the physical need to apply reapply to a to a guide dog school to wait until they have a, an appropriate dog and a and a place available in the class and then to take time off from the rest of your life uh, whether it's work or whatever activities to go to a school uh, train with the dog for two or three or four weeks, depending on the the program, and and then you have all the adjustment to the new dog and how it works, and then there's the emotional uh, component of you know, losing a companion of a decade and establishing a relationship with a new uh, partner. There's always the comparison of, you know, this dog doesn't do this that the other dog did or, and the, la- you know, the, the lapses in your memory of you don't remember what it was like those first six months with the, with the first dog. Yeah. You just remember the dog At the end. as it was <laughs> working, you know, wonderfully and mm. smoothly. So there's always the, is this dog going to make it? Are we going to be able to be a team? Am I going to have to send it back? Is it you know, going to fail for whatever reasons? And then is it my fault? And there's all the uh, recriminations. You know, you didn't maintain the training. You didn't. Um, you weren't tough enough. You yeah. weren't tough enough. You didn't correct the dog enough or. Uh, you, you know, let the dog up on the furniture at home. You let other people uh, play with your dog or whatever. Was uh, the a... lifespan of a horse uh, an element for you in the decision? Definitely. Yeah, because all this investment for a dog who will, between, who will retire at 11 years old versus a horse who will keep on going for many, many, twice at least that if not three times that length of time. Yeah, the average working lifetime of a dog is about five years, mm. maybe five and a half. 
uh, because they're they're usually not placed until they're two, two and a half, sometimes older, and they generally, if you're if you get a good one and it really works and you you form a permanent team, they may work until ten at you know usually that's when they if not retire at least start thinking about retiring because at that point you may be altering your activities and travel arrangements depending on the dog rather than the dog enabling you to right. to travel more freely and more independently so uh, it begins to limit your your choices mm. Uh, so you're thinking about retirement at that point, but the and then there are so many that either for health reasons or for working reasons or stop earlier. Yeah, traumatic reasons they stop earlier. Mm. You know, a lot of it is um, responses to things that have happened, like attacks from loose dogs on the street, or um, you know whether it's uh, phobias that develop, anything from fear of transportation like trains or buses to fear of rain or loud noises, thunderstorms, things like that that develop over the years. And I think a lot of that comes from the whole stress of the working environment and the poisoned cue um, situation Mm -hmm. that, you know, some of these things may be environmental cues that it's the context cues yeah, that, yeah. you know, that the webinar that we just had with Dr. Jesus for Salas Ruiz, where he's talking about, it's not, you know, you can't just look at the cue, the, the sit, the down, the stay. You've got to look at the cues in the whole context in which they're occurring. So it's exactly what you're describing. Yeah. And who knows whether a lot of the medical problems also result from stress and uh, anxiety things like that. So anyway, the working lifetime of a dog is only about five and a half years, six years. And a horse? And a horse, well, who knows, but you know, they <laughs> can certainly work. We're at 16 now with Panda. <laughs> That's right. Right. They can certainly work uh, for 20 years without, you know, I, I wouldn't say that would be a stretch for, for a horse, especially since the minis live 30 to 40 years pretty regularly, right? Yeah. Yeah. And what you're asking them to do is just to walk so we're not talking about jumping and Mm. going over steep terrain or carrying or carrying a rider so so uh, physically it's it's not as difficult right right and given that lifespan by the time the horse is slowing down probably the handler is too (laughs) so they're they're slowing down together together. yeah yeah are there are there others do you know of other uh, minis who are horse guide or? Yes, I know about uh, half a dozen. So is, is Panda the only one that was trained positively? Mm, no. 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 There are, f- there are others? Right. Mm-hmm. But, so Panda, Panda was the second guide horse. So the, this, this, these people in North Carolina trained the first. Panda was the second guide horse. And she was the first clicker-trained guide horse. Mm-hmm. So your your decision to get yeah how how did that happen? So you were you were toying with getting uh, more than toying. You wanted a, a German Shepherd, and and yet you were also intrigued by 
the idea of a miniature horse and Magnet, your senior horse, your, your Arabian, certainly he was showing that this was not a this was not an outrageous idea because he would guide you around the boarding barn. So you were a rider for many years then before that? I was a rider off and on since I was a child. I started riding when I was 10 years old and I was always fascinated by horses. Then life is what it is and I got involved in uh, you know traveling around the world and having kids and raising them and working and whatnot and was away from riding for many years but then came back when my children got old enough so that uh, I wasn't needed full-time at home and I was working and I, I got back into riding and met Alex and met Magnet and eventually he became mine and uh, you know he w I would walk with him from the barn to his paddock <clears throat> and uh, around the barn and I taught him to stop at uh, doorways and uh, changes of you know where there was rough ground or whatever and at uh, to take me to the the paddock gate uh, so that I could uh, open it to let him in etc and when I was riding him uh, I would depend on him to go around obstacles that were in the arena because at that time we were at a boarding barn and sometimes the kids would leave jumps or other you know poles or other pieces of equipment out in the arena uh, so I would indicate to magnet the general direction I wanted him to go in but I depended on him to make the adjustments that were necessary to go around obstacles to stay respectful distance from other horses and to turn at the corners you know but at in the range you know close enough to to the corner but not too close so I always thought of my directions to him as general suggestions but not as you will do it now kind of uh, commands um, can I can I, I have to share one of my favorite magnet stories so magnet was a I, we used to say he was a one in a million horse, but he really was a one in 10 million horse. He was phenomenal and just such, such a gentleman. So he was, he was an Arab. Yeah. Yeah. He was just <laughs> super horse, super phenomenal horse. Not what you would expect from an Arab. Oh, yes, what you'd expect uh, from an Arabian. Usually, yes. you know, the Arabs I've known were very, so always so sensitive to everything in the environment. So to have a, a horse like that be solid in the environment is, um, I find, so interesting and such a good example of every, every horse is a study of one. Yes. Magnet had an interesting history. So... I would love to I would love to have met the trainer who started him because whoever started him did a really good job. So he had a good base and I think that makes a huge difference when you're especially when you're thinking about taking on an older horse or doing a rehab or doing a, a horse rescue that if you have a good base to go back to you'll be okay. 
it's the horses that have the really horrible starts where you struggle, 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 struggle. So Magnet, he was started really well. He was trained originally as a reining horse. He was in the Midwest and he belonged to a couple who got divorced. And to spite her husband, the wife insisted that he sell Magnet and Magnet had been his favorite horse. And some clients of mine were visiting, they were business partners, and they were visiting at the time and they fell in love with Magnet and bought him and brought him back east. And I met Magnet the day after he arrived at their farm and I fell in love with him. I coveted him. And I don't normally covet other people's horses, but oh my goodness, he was, I just, he just, he fit me like a glove. And he was, he was just, there's certain horses that just get inside mm. and that you make this really instant and deep connection with. And that was Magnet. Mm. But in any event, he was, he was their guest horse. So they would have friends visiting on the weekend and, and Magnet was always the horse that people rode. And some of the guests knew how to ride and they would get on and go, oh, this horse knows some fun stuff. And so they'd be ripping changes out of him and doing you know, some of the reining horse spins. And, and then they'd go for these long trail rides up into the mountains. And because the, uh, the husband, my client, liked to go on these really, he'd like to go on 20 mile trail rides on the weekend and he liked to go fast. So he would get on and he'd forget that he was riding with other people and he would just get on and go fast. And the people who knew how to ride could sort of keep up because Magnet could go fast. And the people who didn't know how to ride spent the next however long they were still on sort of white faced <laughs> as a sheet thinking they were going to die. And the whole thing started to stress Magnet out. And he, I started to hear these Magnet horror stories. And, and I was hearing various things that were just going really wrong. He fell at one point up in the mountains. He, he went down on his knees. He fell. That was odd. And, and then he became the horse that nobody wanted to ride. Hmm. So he was the one that was left behind in the paddock. And, and my clients decided that they needed to, that they, they were going to sell him. And so I popped up and said, well, before you sell him, I think you should send him to me to evaluate and let's see what's going on with him. And when he arrived at the, uh, we, we had a spot at the boarding barn, so I was able to bring him over. And when I got on, he just felt like four flat tires. There was just, this was not the horse that I knew. And he, there was clearly something wrong with him. He just felt like a car that had all the air let out of the tires or, you know, where you're trying to pedal a bicycle and where the tires are, are deflated. And, and so I said to them, I think we really need to have him evaluated because there's something wrong with this horse. So we had a vet come out and he did the usual lameness exam. We, we watched him go. We watched him lunge around in both directions. I mean, Dominique, you've seen this so many times, given all the horses that you've had 
uh, over the years through Kavaya, when you have a lameness exam, you know what it looks like. And they do the flexion tests and he, he, each thing that, there was nothing there that, where he could say, oh, well, that's what it is. And he would say, yeah, he looks fine. He's really, you know, there's, I, there's nothing really wrong. And I then would say, but I can feel it. There's something wrong with this horse. And my vet knew me well enough to keep looking. And, and yet, everything that he checked, magnet seemed fine. And finally, as a last sort of thought, he went out to his truck, got his stethoscope, and listened to Magnet's heart. And Magnet had a severe, severe heart murmur, which explained a lot of things. It explained why he was running out of energy and had fallen out on the trails. It explained why he looked so awful, because when he came to me, he just looked, uh, his coat was 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 dull, his, he was down in weight, he just looked terrible. And, and now my clients were in this really hard position because ethically, you really couldn't sell a horse who had a heart murmur that was as bad as magnets. And yet they really didn't want to keep him, but who would want a horse like this and I piped up and said, oh, I, I would, <laughs> I'll take him. Because for the kinds of work that I wanted to do, I didn't need to take him out on trail 20 mile trail rides up into the mountains. Um, that, wasn't, that wasn't my passion. So I started to work with him and introduced, this was right at the very beginning of clicker training. And Magnet, that's sort of the reason for telling this long story, which I wasn't intending to, but since we were talking about Arabians, he came to me as a problem horse. He was a horse that nobody wanted to ride because having the his owner get on another horse and go blasting off at full speed, it had undermined Magnet's emotional stability to a very great extent. And yet, because he had a really good beginning, it was not hard to get back to that, to mm -hmm. find that and rebuild from that. And that Magnet was, on balance, this really solid, super individual. And he, and he was very kind, and he was easy to get along with. And he could have gone through his entire life being a quite nice but ordinary horse, if he'd never been clicker trained, you know, he would have gotten along with everybody, you would have been able to handle him. You didn't need clicker training to get along with this horse. He was a perfectly nice, ordinary horse. When I started clicker training him, it completely transformed him. And he went from being an ordinary horse to being an extraordinary horse, to being that one in a million horse. And then, Anne, as you really worked with him and developed him, he grew into that one in 10 million horse. So early on, one of the things that we taught him, this is getting finally to my favorite magnet story. One of the things that we taught him was to fetch. And he would go into the arena at night and you'd have him all saddled up, ready to ride. And he would insist that you let him loose and he would go around the arena and collect all the things that the afternoon lesson kids had dropped 
and bring them back to you. So he would hand you your your chuckling. I can am smiling remembering this. So he would hand you the any riding crops that they dropped or gloves that they dropped, Kleenex. It's a good thing you were a teacher because <laughs> and a mother because you know as your this horse is handing you dirty Kleenex and and when he ran out of those he would go around the arena and if there were extra big pieces of shavings that that needed <laughs> to be collected up he would bring those to you and and it wasn't until the arena was all tidied up that he would then say okay we're ready to go to the mounting block yes he'd he'd pick up cones he'd pick up. Uh... <laughs> You know, hats, uh, jackets, anything the kids had left around the arena. And when I was grooming him, um, if I would drop a brush, I would, uh, you know, I always had him like loose in the in the wash stall when I was grooming him. And if I dropped the brush, he would pick it up and hand it to me. So that was always a big help. So back to my question: How did you decide to have a guide horse? What, what happened between Magnet and Panda that made you want to try this out? Well, we were both, mostly it was just hearing about the fact that maybe it could be done and having had the experience with Magnet to know that horses are smart enough to do the work, you know, despite what horse people and general guide dog trainers and people like that were saying, oh no, you know, they couldn't possibly do this, and that it was ridiculous to think a horse could um, manage in uh, the human environment, that they wouldn't spook at everything that was going on, and that they would be able to uh, walk on slippery floors, etc., etc., that there were so many reasons why, you know, horses couldn't be house-trained, all of these things. But we believed that None of that was true, that these were not real uh, obstacles to horses working as guides. And that, I mean, I had never known until that point that there were horses small enough to yeah, exactly to work as guides. So it was only when I started hearing about uh, miniature horses that were under 30 inches tall and, you know, weighed uh, 100 in the area of, uh, of 100 pounds rather than... Uh, 600 or whatever you know the smallest ponies that I had seen were a lot bigger than that were like Shetland pony size so we became intrigued by the idea that miniature horses could work as guides and that it would be wonderful and that it would be an interesting clicker training project to see whether a positive training method could create the um, reliability and working, serious working animal that you needed for the guide work, that this wasn't just a trick, it wasn't That's just right, a... right, because this is serious work. I mean, you, you, put, you put your life in this horse's hands. Right. It's not, like you say, just a trick that you want a really, really, you need a really reliable animal. That's right. So, and this, this was 2001, so... It's still early days yeah. in terms of clicker uh, training, clicker training yeah. horses. You don't it's know what you can create with this methodology. That's right. And it's still actually early days in terms of clicker training dogs. Mm-hmm. And it and this was before Guide Dogs for the Blind had started to introduce clicker training into their program. So up to this point, the way in which these dogs were trained was with command-based training and 
the idea was, you know, we have to do it this way because people's lives are depending at on stake. It. Yeah, are it, depending it was on it was one of the reason why there was resistance to transition yeah. to clicker training, and, and and some of the. I mean, there's some really complex concepts to be taught to the animal. I mean, to disobey what your handler is asking you to do because there is an obstacle, that is not an easy concept to teach an animal. <laughs> well, it, it's is not, it? It's, <laughs> do you find it easy to to? Uh, it was to easy teach? with clicker training. Yeah. It, it's probably easier with clicker training than it is with the traditional... Uh, mindset and the traditional training framework but um, because it's that, pretty refined concept I mean to for the animal to understand that you know he has to make judgment call and disobey his handler and that's the right thing to do that's the correct answer I mean that's I'm impressed I'm impressed by that as Alex taught it to use the clicker training to teach panda her whole environment was that same so from the beginning she was learning that you take many factors into account and that a a cue is not a command do it or else i mean i was always appalled when i would hear the trainers the traditional horse trainers saying you know i teach my horse to follow the commands the cues whatever they call them it would well tech you know they're not they're not cues. They're commands. They're commands. They're yeah. things that you say and that 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 the the horse needs to do. And I it always used to, you know, I'd get the shivers when I would hear them say, you know, if I'm riding my horse towards a cliff and I tell him to go straight, I expect him to jump off the cliff. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, dogs, uh, not dogs, but horses go through fire, you know, in stunts, exactly, and or jump and through, you know, through and... windows and yeah. things like that for. And they do it. And they expect them to do that. Well, you know, that's all well and good for them, I suppose. Although I'm sure a lot of them get into trouble when they're out on the trail and they tell the horse to go, you know, into the river or into the swamp or whatever. And they find out that it's quicksand, but the horse and the horse tries to tell them that's not a good idea or, you know, the whole uh, let's go over the bridge kind of thing and they tell them to go forward and the horse says, I don't think so, but they say, do it because I said so and they end up, you know, falling through a bridge or something like that. And that was always one of the things that I thought was important in terms of Panda's training for the larger horse community was bringing this idea of intelligent disobedience more out in the open because really it's something we want if we want our horses to do and we want to create the kind of training where we can trust the horse that when he says no this is not a good idea we say ah you're sensing something that i'm not and and i trust you so you know everybody who's trail ridden has either directly experienced or knows that story that Anne was just describing of, you know, the horse that refuses to go forward and you're there with your, you know, slapping it with your reins or with your whip or whatever it is that you've got trying to make this horse go forward and the horse is refusing. And then some other horse comes up alongside who's grown up in maybe a, a small paddock and hasn't had a lot of experience in the environment. And it that rider 
says to the horse, go forward, the horse goes forward, and all of a sudden is belly deep in, in uh, quicksand. And everybody who's trail ridden has some version of that story, whether it's quicksand or the grizzly bear or, you know, something, or the, the horse that refused to jump. And, and on the other side of the jump, there was something really horrifically dangerous. And, and if we could train our horses in such a way that we really understood the whole concept of intelligent disobedience and how it works, when our horses say no, because one of the things, and we've talked about this, Dominique, a lot in the podcast, is one of the things that we are giving when we give our horses control, when we're, for example, when we're talking about choice, well, embedded in choice, it has to be the choice to say, no, thank you. Mm -hmm. And what do you do when your horse says, no, thank you? No, thank you, I don't want to go forward. No, thank you, I don't want to go over this jump. Do you trust the horse and say, ah, you can tell that the footing is too slippery or maybe there's something wrong with me that, that my balance is off and I might fall off over this fence. You know, whatever it is that that horse is detecting that, that we have this understanding of, in, of what is referred to as intelligent disobedience. And in the guide work, what that means is if Ann and Panda come up to a curb and they stop and Ann listens for the traffic and then tells Panda to go forward, but she hasn't, Ann has not heard the electric car that doesn't make a lot of noise and is just coming around the turn and that Panda, instead of going forward, either holds her ground, backs Ann up out of the harm's way, or in some way blocks her from going in front of the car. So that cue to go forward is lower, it, it's, it's trumped by the moving car. And that, in a, in a nutshell, is intelligent disobedience. And then one of the other reasons, one of the reasons that I was interested in training a guide, so Anne had, you had a lot of reasons, Anne, for wanting a guide. Mm-hmm. And I was curious and interested in training a guide because, first of all, it was an interesting training project. It was quite a stretch. Could I, could I actually train a guide horse? And when you think about all that that involves, it's not just the job of guiding, but there's the housebreaking, you know, all the, you know, all these other things. Going in a car, going up and down the stairs. Yep, yep, all of those things. So that was that was of interest to me. And then in the broader picture. So it was, it was, could clicker training do this? And I thought, what a great test, test, exploration, way of expanding our, our understanding of clicker training would be to train a, a working guide. And then there's this belief, and, and we, you know, Dr. Susan Friedman talks about cultural fog and all of these stories that we tell. Well, one of the stories that, one of the myths of guide dogs is that the guide dogs that the working guide dogs are some like these special breed apart individuals that they are have uh, extraordinary intelligence that they are unusual dogs that can work you you talked about the one that was it was they were a breed within a breed mm-hmm. 
and that horses, the general belief system about horses is that horses are stupid animals and therefore a horse couldn't possibly be a guide because they are stupid animals. And, and they're I, prey animals, they're flight animals, they're, yeah. uh, they're not able to uh, put up with the stresses of the modern environment, things like that. So I thought, you know, if we have a, a, a horse who's doing the same job as these dogs that are considered to be so extraordinarily intelligent, that that might just cause at least a few people well, me. to rethink, <laughs> to reevaluate how we view horses in general. Because it's not that Panda is extraordinarily intelligent. She is, but, you know, not exceptionally above and beyond what other horses are. It's this idea that horses are stupid animals. It's an absurd idea. It's, they, they may appear to be stupid because you're using punishment in your training and you get a suppression of behavior and you get an animal that is only going to do the least amount to avoid the punishment. But when you start clicker training, we all know that what you get is this enthusiastic animal that just excels in its ability to learn. Yeah. For me, it was it was about that, not about, I've never thought that horses were stupid ever in my life, but when I saw the images that are on the, the internet, I saw how serious, you know, that, that this method was because these results were so impressive. And it seemed so, the horse seemed so comfortable in all the various environments. I mean, if you could teach that to a horse, everything else yes. seemed like nothing. And the communication system that develops between the handler and the horse is just amazing. I mean, that it always amazes me that when I'm with Panda, it's like she's talking to me. I can, it's like I can hear her thoughts in complete sentences. And she, I know she can hear mine. It's almost like there's a, I don't know, there's a bubble of uh, consciousness that includes both of us. Wow. So that when I, you know, I ask her, her to do things, and I, and I certainly give her prompts, but they're all in a context, and they all mean this is what I want you to do. And I, I lo most of the time, I don't feel like I have to give verbal cues, but I do just to keep them, I don't know, keep them. Because you're a verbal species. <laughs> just to keep them there, in case I may need them someday. <laughs> but... Um, but what it means is this is what I'd like you to do. But of course, that is taking into account everything else that's going on in the environment, which may be, you know, obstacles, changes in the environment that I don't know about because they happened since the last time that we were there. It may be that I am misperceiving something that I think we're uh, 10 feet from a 
crosswalk or place where I'm going to want her to stop, but maybe we're actually 30 feet or 50 feet away from that crosswalk because I um, was distracted by something and lost track of exactly where where I am. There may be uh, long stretches where there aren't any uh, specific landmarks that I know, oh, we just came to that crack in the sidewalk, so I know after another 30 feet or whatever, I can start asking her to find the the crosswalk, find the curb, something like that. But there are a lot of times when I uh, I lose track of exactly where I am. So if I tell her, find the curb, and she says, there's no curb around here. But uh, she interprets that as, okay, we just continue walking along this sidewalk until I uh, you know, come to a crack or a, or, or something that I can, uh, say is a substitute for a curb and I'll stop there, you know, but she interprets everything that I say with a caveat that it depends on what's going on in the environment. And so, she's, and she's such a good tour guide. I think we have, we have yeah. to insert that. I've been looking for a stopping point and this seems like a good one. We'll wait until next week to continue on with this tour of Panda's training. There's so much more to share. I've put up some more photos and videos of Panda in the library section of the Equosity website. Go to equosity.com to view them. And until next time, have fun with your training.